Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, uh, recorded live. Well, recorded here at uh, Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, um, presented also by the Pop Sequentialism um, website and blog. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and I want to introduce everybody who doesn't already know to my good friend Howard Hallis, who, aside from being one of the world authorities on the character Doctor Strange, uh, is also a fine artist and exhibiting artist, um, comes out of that great UCLA world that had people like Chris Burden, Paul McCarthy, um, and uh, Howard was actually responsible for setting up the video camera that um, captured Timothy Leary's ultimate demise. I, I I didn't put the video camera there, but I was I was there when when Dr. Leary passed away. I was one of the few people in the room, and uh, it's very strange seeing someone actually die. And uh, I guess in the Harry Potter world, I could see Thestrals now, but uh, no, it was it was a fascinating experience, and we should all be so lucky to pass away in your own home surrounded by friends and family and get a standing ovation right after they pronounce you dead, which is what happened with Tim. Mm. So it was, it was quite a moving and beautiful experience. I was very lucky to be there. And with, of course, with that Harry Potter reference, we get into what the theme of today's show is going to be. And it's going to be the presentation of magic. We're talking about magic with a CK at the end, um, ritual magic, um, and how it relates to comic books how comic books have handled the presentation of um, ritual and occult magic, and um, when they've gotten it right and when they've gotten it wrong. And I figured that a great person to have that conversation with would be would be Howard. Yes, yes, I'm. I've read a lot of comic books about ritual magic. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes, yes, indeed. I mean, I guess you could say that Grant Morrison and Alan Moore are really the main modern proponents of ritual magic and comics definitely chaos magic yeah and funny enough dr strange in uh, a very late issue of the first avengers series i think it was issue 503 uh after the scarlet witch goes crazy uh someone says well you know she was a practitioner of chaos magic and dr strange said there is no such thing as chaos magic so uh, at least in the Marvel universe, according to Bendis, there is no such thing as chaos magic. Do you think that's his <laughs> his um, admission to not knowing much about the subject in the face of how much press has surrounded people like Grant Morrison and Alan Moore and and their very open discussion about it, or, or maybe an attempt to be like, hey, what we do here, this is a good, clean, wholesome superhero fun, and we don't want to get involved in that that other thing. Well, Marvel's gotten involved at least peripherally, but I think that most of the Marvel superheroes have their origin stories based on science. Either they're irradiated with some kind of radiation or their genetic mutations. There's not a lot of mysticism in the Marvel universe outside of Doctor Strange and maybe... Yeah, Ghost Rider. But even those, you know, they're they're monsters. They're mutations that Blade goes after. Uh, okay, Ghost Rider, I guess, goes into the mythos of, you know, hell being a real place and him getting his powers from the devil. And of mm-hmm. course, in the early issues, he there's a Jesus character that appears. So yeah, there 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 is a few mystical characters that Marvel has used. But I think since 
the movies have started coming out, they've really gravitated toward the scientific explanation for these powers. And it'll be interesting when the Doctor Strange movie comes out to see how they handle the mysticism element. It does seem like the the golden age, which in this case would actually be the Bronze Age, of um, Marvel's attention to even the occult, really, um, comes and goes with Marv Wolfman. That Marv Wolfman being a writer um, on some of the early 70s titles like uh, Tomb of Dracula um, was also a frequent contributor to Marvel Spotlight, which helped launch um, the characters Son of Satan. Uh, Blade came out of Marvel Spotlight, I believe, as well, on Marvel Premiere. Um, and the Dracula character, and Morpheus the Vampire, um, that all of these these creations seem to be from that particular era of comics, the early 70s, mid-70s. But I think that there was sort of a national interest in gothic horror. Certainly Dark Shadows was on television as a soap opera. And um, it could have been just a part of the, the general zeitgeist. Now, in talking about chaos magic and how it relates to comics, the work of Grant Morrison is such meta-writing that the zeitgeist is seemingly the guiding hand of his cosmic um, view. Yeah, he's brought a lot of uh, that kind of element into DC Comics, and a lot of it was from his own experiences, um, you know, meeting... On the Invisibles and yeah, the, the yeah. spaceship, his, if, if his... anybody's familiar with what Grant has, has talked about. Right. I, he was, uh, I think he was in Nepal somewhere mm -hmm. and he had all of these out of body transcendent experiences that he brought directly into. I think it's Kashmir. Yes. It, it, or Kathmandu? Kathmandu. It, it's yes, Kathmandu. Yes, yes. There we go. Okay. We got it. It's one of those. <laughs> but yeah, he had that spiritual awakening and saw all of these interdimensional beings, some of whom were not very nice. And he brought all these into the invisibles. And yeah, that definitely was, uh, you know, that in, in the nineties that really, uh, he, he was basically the Alan Moore of the nineties, bringing the, that chaos magic element into the comics. Yeah. Alan was, Alan Moore was in for a good deal of the nineties in a kind of, uh, reclusive retirement that, um, wasn't Promethea the 90s too, though? Promethea, Promethea, late 90s maybe, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, most of Alan Moore's focus in the 90s was at Image, mm -hmm. where um, the 1963 universe that uh, Steve Bissett and Rick Veach put together with Alan Moore, and that will never be republished because they can't get Alan Moore to sign off on a republication of it. Didn't Neil Gaiman do one of the books for that as well? Oh, I'm well? sure, yeah. yeah. I remember and, that. You know, and Alan had been brought in to, to write <laughs> for Spawn, as as had um, Neil Gaiman. And um, you know, then the through Top Cow, I think they were publishing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which took a very long time to become a regular kind of comic again. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, definitely in that interim, you had Grant Morrison doing his turn on Animal Man, which became a very meta self-referential comic where he became a character in that comic book as well. Right, and also the Doom Patrol stuff he did. Which, which is, is so crazy, so Dada-esque, <laughs> as people were fond of saying. Danny the Street. I like how he had an entire street as a character, and it could appear anywhere and take you anywhere. It was very, very imaginative. Yeah. I like his idea of hyper-time as well. Mm -hmm. He brought in a lot of uh, quantum... 
physics into the DC universe. He, he's an interesting guy, that Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we've talked about some of the recent guys. I think it's a good chance to take a break right here for a second is uh, before we dive back into time we're going to hear a little word from uh, one or two of our sponsors but uh, we'll be right back with Howard Hallis uh, you're listening to Pod Sequentialism Hey guys it's Briars just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood we got Meltology. Meltology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's Comics Jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We're here with uh, Howard Hallis, uh, great authority on Doctor Strange, but also on the history of mysticism in comics. And um, in the first part of the program, we talked a little bit about, um, I guess you could say, the state of the of the black arts as they relate in comics with uh, people like Grant Morrison and, and Alan Moore. But um, let's go back to the beginning. What um, at what point did the idea of like real maybe Crowleyan mysticism start to enter the comic book medium? Well, I know that uh, there were a lot of pulps that came out around the time of Alistair Crowley being alive that uh, purported to have you know, characters stumbling into occult uh, rituals, breaking them up, mm-hmm. you know, superheroes finding a woman about to be sacrificed to the devil and all of this, you know. this The is- Typhonian tradition, I think, is a, a great uh, subject out of one of Peter Lavenda's books where he talks about um, Aleister Crowley and H.P. Lovecraft writing about the exact same things on the exact same dates. Um, because Crowley kept copious notes with his his letters, and um, all the stories that H.P. Lovecraft wrote have dates, you know, written into the actual stories. And I guess um, you have the other British magician, um, is it Kenneth Anger? No, Kenneth Anger's American, <laughs> but um, a different. Oh my gosh, this is uh, this is going to torture me, but. Um, the number one proponent of the Typhonian tradition is this other English writer. And he seems to be the guy that was able to connect the two in a at least somewhat arbitrary way that that maybe there was more to it. And I know that Lavenda's book is, um, I think it's called The Beast, um, is it, it really explores those. But talk to a little bit about those pulps, those other pulps that were out there. Well, I know there were radio stories as well as the pulps like Chandu the Mystic, which Stan Lee says is one of his primary inspirations for Doctor Strange. There's always been the idea of the superhero magician from the pulp times, Mm -hmm. but in comics you could look at Doctor Fate from the 1940s before they turned him into a superhero and had him fighting alongside the rest of the Justice Society of America. Um, In his first few issues in more fun comics, 
they had him as, you know, they had all of this Egyptian mythology, and they've since brought that back in mm. when they've revamped the character a few times. But uh, this was back in the 40s, the first appearance of Dr. Fate. Uh, he actually goes and meets God mm -hmm. and is bestowed with not only this helmet with uh, arcane occult powers, but, you know, he has all of this Egyptian mythology following him. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you know from Crowley, he had his honeymoon in the Great Pyramid. And, you know, th th there was a lot of that in that character. And there were various other... Um, occult superheroes to follow, but really, I think the next major one was probably Doctor Strange in '63, I guess, or '64, and uh, it was. Um, I mean, it's not. It, it was still seen as more of the fantastic, not really bringing it into actual reality mm -hmm. in these early Marvel comics. I think it was only after. Um, Steve Englehart and Frank Brunner started writing the character in the 70s that some real occult mysticism stuff came out of that because they were involved in that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know there's a particular issue of Marvel premiere number 14 where uh, Doctor Strange and Baron Mordo um, follow this super magical being named Calistrogo, also mm -hmm. used in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen yep. and a few other things. It's based on the alter ego of some 18th century uh, magician fellow. I forgot his name at the moment. But anyways, mm -hmm. they follow him through time till he goes all the way back to the Big Bang. And as Calistrogo is going through time, he's absorbing all of the magical energy of all of these eras till finally at the end of the comic he becomes god and explodes and he is the big bang yeah and uh only dr strange and mordo have witnessed this whole thing taking place and they even say like he needs time to come down like he's coming off of some crazy acid trip and i think that when brunner and Engelhart were doing that stuff they were basing it on certain ritualistic experiences that they were doing when they weren't in the Marvel offices. Whereas right. I think Stan Lee and Ditko and Kirby, although they had these sensibilities and these wild imagination, uh, they're, all of this was great in developing all these characters. It wasn't really based on actual ritual magic in the same way. And I know that, um, that Frank Brunner was a regular at the Magical Child, which was um, one of the most famous occult shops in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was in New York City. I was I believe it was in Manhattan. And um, if anybody is is looking for um, a great documentary on similar subjects, um, Fangoria magazine um, started to issue some home videos in the in the eighties. The first was a video on Tom Savini and about makeup special effects. And the second one was sort of a real head-scratcher for Fangoria because it was a documentary about Satanism and witchcraft. And they talk about the history um, of the concepts of both of uh, Satan as shaitan and um, adversary. Um, and and they, they really go down through the, the treatment of the devil in, in pop culture and before pop culture was pop culture, when it was just culture. And they also, they interview the original owner of Magical Child who was still alive at the time. Uh -huh. And he talks about an actual 
um, war of magicians that took place on the streets of Manhattan in the um, the early 1970s. And the people who hung out at that shop, a lot of them were comic book writers or fantasy writers. And that I think Marv community, Wolfman as well. Yeah, Marv Wolfman, there. ironically named. And one of my favorite writers of comics, you know, I, I would put his Teen Titans up against Chris Claremont's uh, Uncanny X-Men. And, and nine times out of ten, I preferred the stories that were in the Perez and Wolfman um, Teen Titans. And don't forget, Marv Wolfman also had that series Night Force for DC, yep. which was based on a group of occult magicians. Mm -hmm. It didn't really do very well. It only lasted a couple of issues. But, you know, that that was probably based a lot on some of his personal experiences. He also wrote the Dracula, Doctor Strange uh, story, the Montresi formula, where Marvel wanted to get rid of all the vampires. So he has Doctor Strange team up with Hannibal King and Blade and uh, recite this spell that kills every vampire. Of course, they've since revamped that and retconned it, but yeah. uh, it was it was pretty pretty good story that was heavy here. stuff i remember when i was a kid and, and tracking down those issues and, and people talking about them you know in hushed tones um and you know I, I grew up in salem massachusetts so it's you know uh no small feat to impress the um the little warlocks in the neighborhood <laughs> and right down the street from um from the parker brothers factory where uh ouija boards were That's made right. and mass produced but the the interesting thing and you, you touched on this is that you know, when you talk about the 1940s and Dr. Fate and the whole Egypt thing, Carter had just, you know, 20 years earlier um, stormed into Egypt. And by the 1940s, there was this incredible um, nostalgia for Egyptian fashion that had started to happen. And so you have a little bit of that that probably feeds into a little bit of the character. But also at that time, and you mentioned this, you know, Crowley was considered the wickedest man alive. Um, was in the middle of a libel suit in England, and it was starting to make headlines across in, in the United States, mainly in tabloids. And if you've, we, we mentioned Kenneth Anger by mistake earlier, but he becomes uh, pretty prescient to this because it was Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon that kind of opened up the, the tabloid format in uh, novelization form. And it was such a huge hit, I, I can't even imagine how many printings it's been through but that he he taps into those types of headlines that weren't appropriate for major newspapers you know they weren't going to make the front the front page of the big city newspapers but in the tabloids and in the met in the detective magazines that that were in every supermarket in the country uh, probably bought mainly by old ladies um you would catch stories like this that they would make their way into you know the the zeitgeist i guess of of the middle class of the bourgeois and by the 60s, it's LSD, psychedelia, and how that was used to open up people's chamber of thought. And so there became a new interest in paganism, in um, magic, in the occult, and that type of thing. So what do you think is the bridge there? You know, that, that whole thing kind of reminds me of Neil Gaiman's Sandman number 1 story arc, where... Uh, Sandman is captured by, uh, I forgot the, the name of the guy, mm. but he's kind of a Crowley um, archetype. Mm. He's leading a whole group of kids, and it follows him through the aeons, uh, through, through the various decades, mm -hmm. you know, from the beginnings, you know, through the 60s and 70s, 
and how the crowds of people that came to him differed. And of course, he had uh, Morpheus trapped in that bubble. And anyways, if if you go in back the first and... couple, the first six issues of Sandman, yeah. which were uh, what Norm Dringenberg, um, Sam Keith, illustrating for Neil Gaiman. Yes. Um, yes, I loved Sam Keith as an artist. I thought he was a wonderful writes and imitator. And I was a huge Wrightson fan, but I didn't think that that series really got rolling until it started tackling, you know, the the serial killer convention of Doll's House yes, and that type Dolls, of thing. Yes. But you're right, you know, the, those early issues were kind of like an intelligent way to say, okay, this is this is where this comes from in a real world kind of context, but it's still fantasy, and now we're going to get deep. But and, but you know, I I think to answer your question though, um, in the '40s. I kind of feel that a lot of the superhero characters responding to the war and all this were about, you know, alienation or alien forces bestowing power upon the characters. And uh, then you had the 50s and the atomic era where people became irradiated with power. But it was also in that time that you had EC comics out there and you had all of the EC comics uh with their gratuitous violence and everything but they also had all of these occult elements they had witches but instead of yeah these witches were evil hags yeah they had ghouls and and zombies and all of this so you know the horror element in that was more shock movie kind of gore what you couldn't get in the cinema at that time, you could get in a comic book. And that's something that um, that Frederick Wortham um, really chastised the comic industry for in his Seduction of the Innocent. We talked about that a little bit with uh, Steve Bissett um, in one of the very early um, versions of this podcast. And the I guess what, what Wortham's big objection was to all of that violence and all the occult stuff was that it was mass marketed to children. And apparently... He was a huge fan of the zines and a huge fan of underground comics, which were, you know, much worse in their content to a, um, you know, a quiet, a sort of milk toast America than were the ECs. But um, that he felt that it was because it was mass produced, because it was these big companies that were using this as a product to sell what he considered to be junk to kids, that he had a problem with it. Um, but you know you're right. You know that those those things, and I mean, I loved digging through old comic book boxes and would pray, you know, that I would come across some old DCs that I'd come across, you know, uh, Tales from the Crypt or more, you know, Vault of Horror and Haunt of Fear, which was my favorite because Ghastly Graham Ingalls was drawing the really really scary stuff, and the, but even though know, the shock suspense stories, which was their their detective fiction kind of thing, would have a lot of really racy stuff in it. Well, these comics before the code were bringing not only the occult in there, but they were bringing a lot of sex mm-hmm. into the comics. You had the headlight books with the women with the very protruding breasts, which yep. which date back to the pulps as well, because mm-hmm. most of the pulps, even though I guarantee most of the audience for pulp pulps at the time were probably male, mm-hmm. had the 
scantily clad woman on the cover. And, the Sheena type jungle queen. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, the elements of sexuality, the elements of the occult, like these monsters, I think these were the seeds. Mm -hmm. But as the 60s came in and you had the underground culture start exploring drugs and the psychedelic experience, uh, that kind of merged with all of these other things and perpetuated the idea of the occult into books in mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s with Marv Wolfman and Alan Moore, and then later in the 90s with Grant Morrison bringing actual chaos magic rituals and sigils and, uh, you know, talk about tantric uh, illumination and all of this kind of Prometheus, thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Into, into the books. And then it became. And Rogan Gosh, actually, you know, yeah. from, um, from Brandon. Brandon McCarthy. Yep. Yes. Uh, and I think that's when it became really overt. Whereas before it might've been hinted at, it might've been used as a story device. Mm -hmm. uh, in the nineties and two and the early O's or aughts uh, with writers like Grant Morrison and, I guess to a point, Neil Gaiman as well, you're talking about it directly. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was maybe hinted at, there might have been a character that was sort of the Crowleyan archetype mm -hmm. with with uh, Grant Morrison and and uh, John Constantine. You're actually meeting up with Aleister Crowley or characters of mm -hmm. that nature. They're actually in the story. Or in Grant Morrison's case, he's writing himself into the story yeah. as a proponent of all of this. It's funny that, you know, Jamie Delano, who would write the first maybe 17 issues of Hellraiser, um, Hellblazer, sorry, uh, with John Constantine, um, he was one of these other respected English writers that came over in that, that first wave. Uh, so when you had Alan Moore and you know, the rush of talent that came over after Alan Moore was um, Pete Milligan and Brendan McCarthy, um, Grant Morrison, and Jamie, Jamie Delano was, was one of them. This is before Garth Ennis made his way over. So Jamie was kind of tasked with this impossible task of writing a comic based on a character previously written by Alan Moore. And having talked with Steve Bissett many, many times in this issue and easily Tottleben and, and Bissett put as much into that character as as did um, Alan Moore, the um, it still fell flat. It was also still newsprint, I think, when it was first coming out. It hadn't transitioned off into Baxter yet. And so the bright colors that were in a dark book were somewhat off-putting to people who would become fans of the Vertigo line. And while these titles were on the street, they didn't get sort of umbrellaed with the Vertigo label until... I think Doom Patrol was in 50 issues on. Um, you know, Shade was Shade the Changing Man was probably well into the the, the 30s, you know, issue wise. Swamp Thing was you know had long since not been an Alan Moore title, I believe. Well, I think the Vertigo books came about as a positive response from the adult readership and the people who are into the occult and all of these other things realizing, hey, wait a minute, these these comics aren't just a bunch of superheroes and tights beating the hell out of each mm -hmm. other. They're actually talking about uh, more significant and uh, interesting things that might relate to what they were relating to. Mm -hmm. So they decided to make it 
its own brand, I guess. Karen Berger had had been fighting to separate her British boys from the rest of the DC Comics line because they hated getting tasked with sticking superheroes into their comics. Is there any, I don't know, you've probably read more modern Vertigo stuff than I have. Is there anything lately that they've put out that is of note that might be uh, of the same kind of thing? Because quite honestly, I haven't, I mean, because I've been so focused on Doctor Strange stuff, it's been it's been tough to, you know, keep up with Vertigo. I know they've had some troubles lately in really keeping that kind of readership alive because there hasn't really been a new Salmon. Although I guess Neil Gaiman is writing uh, new Salmon, and that the new series actually is really good. I, I really like it. It's beautiful art, and the story itself is a very metaphysical story. But um, you know, it's there. There have been seeds throughout comic history of, especially in the horror books, even in DC's House of Mystery and mm-hmm. House of Secrets, and uh, Secrets of the Haunted House, all that 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 had this occult element. Um, but I think it was really with Vertigo, with these guys we're talking about now, that it really came out as being a not not only story device but a way of almost bridging this comic book reality with the reality you and i are actually living in Mm -hmm. and making the stories within these books transcend just being part of this imaginary dc or marvel universe and actually coming into the the reality as we know it and magic is a good way to have that bridge occur because Although Marvel is more focused on science and mutation and everything, and we could see certain elements of that in our society. We see certain things that look kind of like Iron Man. We see certain people that may demonstrate different abilities. It's still hard to explain away Thor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one way to do that is by bringing in this ritual magic thing. So it's always kind of been in the peripheral of comic books. I always kind of like too. this was something that I think started to take seed a little bit with Wally Woods run on the Dr. Doom stories in the back of Tales to Astonish. Astonishing Tales. Astonishing Tales. I, you're right. And um, where they kind of laid out the groundwork for Dr. Doom to not have just been cosmically affected by the same rays that you know mutated the fantastic four but that he became this character that had an interest in mystical or otherwise occulted knowledge and the best example of someone using that history of dr doom is uh stern mignola's uh, triumph and torment graphic novel where dr doom and Doctor Strange go to hell mm-hmm. to rescue Doctor Doom's mom from uh, uh, Mephisto, which is basically uh, the Marvel Universe. The Marvel Satan, Universe really. Satan, right? Yeah. Right, and that's that's a beautiful, beautiful graphic novel. And uh, yeah, they, I think that was Kirby that first started him on the occult path because they had his whole origin origin story tied into him studying the occult as well as science and mm-hmm. i think it was only later in the in the movies that they had dr doom on the spaceship along with the other guys yeah. getting irradiated 
But uh, yeah, that was uh, an early development in that supervillain's history. And uh, yeah, Wally Wood certainly, those stories are great. They're beautifully illustrated. And um, I think they just reprinted Triumph and Torment in a uh, graphic novel so a little a little book sized uh like a trade yeah a, tr- a trade and it has some of those astonishing tales or at least one of those astonishing tales stories reprinted in the back as well so uh that's definitely worth checking out and you know mike mcnola and, and hellboy and all of that is another person who used a lot of these tropes very overtly uh you know there was a lot i know Hellboy's mentor is kind of based on Charles Fort. Mm-hmm. They made him look like Charles Fort. And, you know, even in the first Seed of Destruction story, they had the frogs raining down. So, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of that that comes into it. And Charles Fort, you, you can't really deny his influence on almost all of the occult writings after him. You're going to have to explain Charles Fort to the the listeners. Well, Charles Fort was a fellow, he wrote, he only wrote four books, but I guess his most uh, well-known books called Book of the Damned. And uh, he would sit in a library and look through all of these news stories in French and in English for any kind of weird anomaly that was actually that actually occurred and was written about in a newspaper if it ever rained frogs or if it ever rained fish if there was ever some kind of weird uh hybrid animal mutation that was born somewhere he would write about all of these things he was basically collecting all of these stories for this for cryptozoology this type cryptozoology thing. has a lot and um yeah so a lot of these uh, the idea of the phenomenal and the unbelievable and the unexplained actually occurring in reality uh we have a lot to thank charles fort for because that that was his forte really is collecting all of these stories and no pun intended that's right (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah so i mean mignola picked up on that and there's a lot of occult stuff in his hellboy books of course and uh the whole trope about the nazis working with the occult and all of that which brings us back to peter lavenda and actually the the title of his book on the typhonian tradition and magic is called the dark lord and a highly recommended reading but um of course it was peter lavenda who wrote one of the very early um non-fiction books on the actual expeditions of the Nazis into Tibet and their connection to a belief system that makes them not just a, a you know, the the SS weren't just a, a bad bunch of guys. They, they were a cult within a, um, a, a force for evil in the world. And um, Lavenda's book, Unholy Alliance, uh, I think bears a foreword by... Oh my goodness! Um, can't think. Of it. I can't think of his name. <laughs> I can't we think. Should, of his we name. should have these. You know, we we should have these things uh, nearby for reference. Well, but, this is how people know that what we do is just you know, th- this is this is real uh, real podcasting here. Well, it's not it's really funny slick. Because... It's not uh, really uh, very well well uh, arranged. Although uh, I'm very very happy to have the guests that I have. Well, you can even go into the Marvel movies then with the Nazis and their occult thing. And mm-hmm. 
the Captain America movie, they're trying to oh, associate. That's, that's straight out of Ratline. Yeah, but the thing is, they're trying to associate these occult connections with the Nazis. Of course, they're they're, they're called Hydra in the movie, but like the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, but, this but they're, is they're, they're trying to make it as they're trying to the Odessa. Well, they're they're trying to link it with the Asgardian mm-hmm. world more than they are with the idea of the occult. So it's going to be interesting when Doctor Strange comes out how they're going to tackle that if they're Norman going to Mailer. Norman Norman Mailer. <laughs> Norman Mailer wrote the foreword to uh okay. to Unholy Alliance. There you go. I was going to say what? <laughs> yes. Hmm. All in the family? What? <laughs> <laughs> Not Norman Lear. But um the um you know, you talk about, and that's actually going to be a theme for for one of the the future podcasts. Is that I want to get Peter Lavenda on to to have him talk about how based in reality Hydra is that this idea of these post war Nazis that kind of got in, ingratiated to you know American government and other governments is, is a very real thing. And I mean, it it, it was sort of fringe literature thirty thirty five years ago. Now there's a lot of books being written by a lot of academics that are like, yeah, you know, um, there was the the monastery route through Rome, through the Vatican. A lot of these these really bad Nazi guys made it down to South America, but um, the U.S. government took on about a thousand of them, you know, to work on the Manhattan Project as yeah. part of Project Paperclip. Paperclip, yeah. So all these Paperclip Nazis were living in uh, the southern uh, southwestern United States. And uh, certainly there's a lot of German-looking buildings in Pasadena. But I'm going to take this moment to take a little break, and we're going to be right back. Uh, yeah, when more. you get to Hitler, you know that you've gone... <laughs> you've gone a little bit too far abreast of things. <laughs> but uh, we're going to take a little break. I hear another word from um, some of our amazing sponsors and some about the amazing events that uh, we have here on the, um, the Meltdown cast. And um, we'll be right back with uh, Howard Hallis on pod, pod Sequentialism. This is Matt Kennedy. Um, see you in a few moments. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Welcome back. This is Matt Kennedy. You're listening to Pod Sequentialism. I have with me a wonderful guest, Mr. Howard Hallis. Um, aside from being an authority on Doctor Strange and uh, having more than uh, layman's knowledge on mysticism in comics, um, Howard is also um, quite adept in lenticular, um, has exhibited in museum spaces, in um, fine art galleries, and um, has been an educator and just an all-around really great guy. So I want to thank him for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna dig a little deeper now. We've talked a little bit about the um, the origins of um, the use of mystical characters in comics, and you know we started talking about how when you get into the Avengers, really, and um, Captain America, and of course Captain America being a creation of of World War Two. Um, and how there's been this recasting of certain other Marvel characters to feed into this more real-world mix of mysticism and um, narcissism, I guess. Um, and and with the the Nazis make such great villains, of course, because they were horrible people. That um, you see 
a express an expressed interest in this kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark type of um, you know, fundamental adventure story. It's like the the good against evil. It's like you know. Well, they've 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 done that, but they've also expanded it. Because I think when you had Spielberg making movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you had the Nazis as the villains and Indiana Jones as the good guy. But Marvel has done a pretty good job with their films and with the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as showing Hydra to be more of a an anomaly. Mm-hmm. It's something that, yes, is fundamentally evil, but it's so – it has prov- – it, it it infiltrated shield to the point where you don't really know who's a good guy or a bad right. guy. Things may not be so black and white now. And I know that they used Hydra in Captain America because I don't think they wanted to have swastikas on American comics. Yeah, uh, but the the funny thing about that is, you know, now you see all these memes where you have like Trump whispering "Hail Hydra." Yeah, and. It may backfire ultimately in the same way that you had V for Vendetta masks in the comics actually becoming the symbol of Anonymous yeah. in real life. Maybe soon you'll actually be seeing people wearing Hydra gear or, or you know, perpetuating that whole idea. Yeah. And uh, whereas Hydra were pretty much one dimensional villains. Originally, for sure. I think yeah. when, when Ed Brubaker took on the Captain America title, um, and I would think that was following his Daredevil run, which was a brilliant Daredevil run. Um, he sort of, you know, he, he used Hydra as, as the main engine of the death of a very major Marvel character. And we're not, there's no spoilers. And I think anybody who'd be listening to this <laughs> knows that that storyline is called the death of Captain America. And yeah. indeed Captain America was killed and it sent shockwaves throughout comics. I had been out of comics uh, when that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, when I heard that they were killing off Captain America, I thought it was just a, a really crass example of um, merchandising happening. And then I read the story and I was like, oh my God, this is really well done. Well, in a way, it, you're, it was definitely well done, but it's also, no one really dies. In yeah. Comic books. yeah, even Bucky came back. So, even know, even the rule that established <laughs> that it, nobody stays dead in comics except Bucky, and then they, they went and ruined that. But they didn't ruin it. They brought him back brilliantly. Yes, they did as Winter Soldier. And, uh, you know, you were talking about Dr. Doom earlier and his mystical aspirations. If you're mm-hmm. reading the latest Secret War, he is now God Supreme of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> so, you know, they... Happily, I'm not reading uh, <laughs> Secret Wars. I didn't, I didn't enjoy the first one. I didn't read the second one. And I'll, I'll probably never go back to read anything bearing that title. I understand it is a huge touch stone for the generation just behind me well we'll see i mean mainly for the toys i think yeah i guess so i guess so it's with with comics so especially with marvel and dc's mainstays they're big contest of champions oh of course i was the (laughs) predecessor to all that yeah but in a way you know it's also these otherworldly godlike forces intervening Mm mm-hmm and forcing these characters to do battle. And the idea of bringing a deity-like entity into comics is sort of aligned with the occult and mysticism in a, in a, in a way. In a representational way, but I think it's also a bit of just the next great step in, and I don't mean great in that it's a good thing, but just in the size of the step, a great stride 
um, in the kind of hyperbolic language of comics that, you know, once you get into the business of killing off main characters, killing off main characters doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, when you've got movies and video games vying for kids' attention and you know that the readership has been declining for the past 20 years, 30 years, um, you know that, you know, you got to take that next big step. Like what really, what can shock um, or in lieu of shock, because I think the, the need for outright shock value left comics in the 90s with, um, you know, Tim Vigil's Faust and then EO was kind of like, okay, how do we shock people after this? And, you know, and Glenn Danzig launching Verotic and, and hiring people like Hart Fisher to write some pretty amazing and extreme stuff in the context of those comics pushed the envelope even further. But, um, yeah, that was very bloody. I, I yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, when you've got the superheroes in films now topping the box office, what can you get in a comic that you know you can't put in the movie? You can start crossing into quasi-religious territory, and you can become a little bit of a um, provocateur in that way, where it's like, hey, you know, it's, well, we used to have the argument, who'd win in a fight, you know, uh, Superman or the Hulk? That was like the big discussion in, in the 70s. You know, you'd hear it in comic shops well up into the 80s. And it's like, well, God, God could beat Superman. God could beat, you know, uh, the Hulk. And I think it was really great that in the 80s, Jim Starlin answered that question for us in a way that I don't think we felt until Morrison did All-Star Superman. It's like, cancer, cancer can kill Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. That that makes, you know, this, this, this fantasy idea of these superpowered people with unrealistic proportions realistic again because they're vulnerable to the same things that we're vulnerable to. And I think that the only way to make giants look small is to find a bigger giant. And what's a bigger giant than whatever deity you want to throw out there? Sure. And when you're dealing with pantheons like like we have been and have been rebuilding again, I mean, even in the new Frank Whiteley series, which is basically about Olympians, that um, you know you're rebuilding off of these old kind of pagan pantheons as modern superheroes, which they are in a lot of ways. What trumps that? Monotheism, you know? And so, you know, what what trumps monotheism? Buddhism, I guess, you know? So well, it, they had the savage dragon. Eric Larson had him fighting mm-hmm. God Yep. in one of those issues. And uh, so God has actually, the Judeo-Christian... Yahweh. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's appeared in comics from time to time. And... Uh, there's, um, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, there's comics now based on the Olympians becoming superheroes. Well, you know, even even the Percy Jackson books yeah. had that going on, and that's very popular among the kids. And yeah, YA uh, Among the young kids, they love the Percy Jackson. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. But, you know... We talked about that actually with, with Ave Rose and the fact that, you know, the young adult novels have kind of usurped the position that comic books had. If you want to talk about the most popular magical ritual, I mean, Harry Potter, Harry Potter. is is really a uh, huge catalyst in yeah. introducing that kind of world to uh, to kids. But uh, of and course, thus hated by uh, evangelicals, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's 
but it's I don't also, think they make up a large portion of my audience, so uh, we we can right. feel free to. Uh, but there's to poke fingers here. There's and there. also this removal from reality. As much as we don't want to be muggles and right. actually use magic in the way they do in those books, it's not really the same type of ritual magic that Grant Morrison and right. these guys are talking. It's about, still Disneyfied, is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no sexual component to, or it's very subtle if there's any of that there yeah. at all. Yeah, there's Disney goth, and then there's the fields of the Nephilim. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the kids in their Jack Skellington shirts, and then there's the people who know, you know, the the real goth stuff. But I'm not going to say it's a gateway in, in the same way marijuana is a gateway to heroin or anything. Right. But it's certainly a way of introducing kids to mysticism in a way that is kind of appealing and interesting. And people are fascinated to read about the goings-on in Hogwarts. And Well, certainly it's positive fantasy. And while it does have its darkness, the um, that's much more tied to personal story, which is why those books work, which is why that they've been so phenomenally popular and why, you know, it's... I don't think we've seen J.K. write the last Harry Potter book. Well, yeah, there's a few years are going to go by and she's going to be like, well, there's... It's right about the parents. <laughs> yeah, you know. But, you know, in Marvel, it's funny. They had this series in the 90s that was pretty much created for sales only. It was the Marvel versus DC books, mm -hmm. which, you know, answered the question, who would, who would win in a fight, Superman or the Hulk? But the reason I bring that up isn't because I want to bring it up for the fact that they answered that question, but for the fact that at the end of that series, these super deities appeared. There was a super deity for the Marvel Universe and a super deity for the DC Universe that merged together to become the Amalgam Deity. But I, I found that fascinating because in a way, the writers of this series, which for all intents and purposes, was kind of silly. It was like a contest of champions yeah. type of thing. But at the end of this, these deities were the personification of God, for the most part, in the Marvel and DC universes. And they've never really been that literal since then. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating. If you look at issue number four of the Marvel versus DC thing, you'll see these giant entities that are supposed have this to... kind of transfiguration <laughs> moment, which is... So, I guess paramount to the uh, giant Egyptian statues that made the tours in the museums in the seventies. Right. So, in in a way, even in these trite stories, you're getting certain elements of the uh, supernatural, the occult, the religious. Mm -hmm. I guess, and I guess there's a fine line between that because I'm wondering how long it's going to be before they revamp Omega the Unknown. Um. Yeah. That's uh, a very well-regarded comic now by people who are writing comics and were reading comics then. He wasn't around too long. That's Steve Gerber's Yeah, and it was a really right? fast yeah. in-and-out series. It was done, you know, really before it got going, but it was tackling some pretty sophisticated I'll have um, to go concepts. reread it. I know, he was, I know he was in the Defenders issues. I yeah. But, uh, because of the doctor. Yeah, because yeah. he's sharing space with Doctor oh, Strange. Right, right. Um, and um, some people may not know this. Uh, Howard has one of the definitive collections of Doctor Strange memorabilia. It's funny, I, I actually wrote into Guinness 
to see if I can get the world's record of the largest Doctor Strange collection in the world. And I think I might get it. Might get I it, might all right. get that title. I'm I'm pretty excited. Well, I'll let you know. Were, were they? Was the issue that it's too specific? No, I I'm still waiting to hear from them. There's, right. There's a thing you can apply for a world record. Mm-hmm. And you could spend like 700 pounds and they'll expedite it and they'll let you know in like two weeks. Or you could just send it in for free and you have to wait like, I don't know, three months or something. Right, so right. We'll, we'll see. I'll keep you posted. Such a shame their museum is right <laughs> down on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I've been actively collecting that particular character and, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens with that. I got to say, it makes Howard one of the most difficult people to buy gifts for because he's got it all. Well, just don't buy me any Doctor Strange. <laughs> but it's it's gotten to the point now of critical mass where there's now stuff coming out. If I continue it, it's going to be too expensive because, yeah. you know, after the movie comes out, you're going to have your $20,000 Doctor Strange slot machines in Vegas right. with Benedict Cumberbatch's face on right. them. And by the time that kind of stuff starts happening, it's impossible to, to have accumulate everything. as much as I have. So. There was a, a point, I think it was probably 20, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, um, when... Gaston, who owns um, Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, uh, he and I were roommates in the in the early '90s. And when he moved from the shop that we both worked at to the first uh, Meltdown, which is across the street from where it currently is, I went there. Yep. And um, then we moved two doors down. It was initially right next to um, Thai Iced Tea Place, not not Toy on on Sunset, but um, another place which was I think called Thai Iced Tea. Um, it moved two doors down, and it was there for quite a while, and then it came over here. But I remember that um, Leonardo DiCaprio was being um, approached for the role of the adult but younger Darth Vader, so Anakin Skywalker. And he came in and was asking about a collection of every Star Wars toy. And I was like, well, yeah, I can probably get that for you, but... And at that point, it was still possible, you know, that the amount of original Star Wars merchandise only went up till droids, I guess, at that at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, two of the more expensive and impossible to find Star Wars toys are droids backed cards. But the um, and I think he wanted everything sealed, everything on card. And so we kind of just spit out a number. It's like, I think we could probably get that for you for a million dollars. And he wasn't moved by that. <laughs> and um and then he didn't take the role and and then it didn't happen but um by the time that second set of movies came out it was impossible yeah. they had taken every bit of merchandising that they had done in the first film and just gone to the nth degree with it and certainly yeah there were there were slot machines and all types of things that you wouldn't think would be necessarily associated with the movie primarily aimed at teenagers i know there's still some guy out there somewhere that has a huge warehouse full of star wars stuff mhm and I wonder how uh, how complete that collection is even now, because yeah, Lord knows it's you got to give up at a certain <laughs> point. You have to tap out, right? Right. But uh, it's been it's been really fun, and it's it's fascinating to get into one character to to that point. And mm-hmm. I think it was Genesis Piorge that really got me started on Doctor Strange because we were talking about 
comic books and superheroes over at Leary's house when he mm. was up there and he, he was like, How like I love Doctor Strange because whereas all these other superheroes are fighting bad guys trying to rob banks, Doctor Strange is going into other dimensions and meeting up with characters called Eternity, who is the eternal embodiment of everything it's a pretty spot-on genesis imitation <laughs> for those who have, have not had the pleasure i actually also spent um a little less time um with uh with genesis and and dr leary around that same era and just saw genesis perform with his band psychic tv last week um, by the time the show airs that will already have been several months ago but um it won't be too soon i think to catch the last psychic tv show because they're touring into 2016 it's an incredible experience uh genesis is a very important counterculture character um credited with helping to develop industrial music with his first group come um and then throbbing gristle helped to um really pioneer um noise and simultaneously um acid disco and um psychic tv are now kind of in their post-psychedelic um, revival phase. Uh, they opened their show uh, the other night with a mashup of Interstellar Overdrive with the lyrics of Astronomy Domine from Pink Floyd. And, uh, which that would have been interesting recorded. to see. Yeah. yeah. He, I know they also did set the controls for the... He, he, Genesis is a fascinating individual and uh, it's a shame... And a, our, kind of a real magician. Yeah, it's a shame Jason Louv, who was supposed to be here today wouldn't didn't come back because he would he's definitely a lot uh, better versed on uh the temple of psychic youth and genesis's writings than than i am uh but uh he he spent a lot of time over there he he's the guy who edited the psychic yeah Bible. yeah but for, uh, um, for feral house too yeah but uh you know that's it's also worthy of bringing up genesis in relation to comics not just because he really kind of was the impetus for me getting into dr strange but also because of his transformation uh into sort of an omnisexual being you know he he was uh married to this woman who since passed away and they they decided while she was alive to become the same person right yeah he he got brass augmentations and all these other things to kind of transform into her. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know Jason Louv would also agree that that's kind of part of this whole ritual magic uh, evolution to get to this state of this omnisexual type being. Its own type of transfiguration. There's yeah. only been a few touches of that in the comics. I know the character of Desire in The Endless that Neil Gaiman wrote about. I know that in uh, in The Invisibles, Morrison had the, uh, the uh, was it Ragged Robin or was Ragged Robin his, his wife? I, I don't know. One of, he, yeah, he, right, right, he had right. one of, he had, he had a transvestite character in there. And it's, it's kind of worth noting as sort of a side note that that's sort of related at least peripherally to the whole magical idea. And the hermaphroditic nature yes, of yeah. motherness. There you, you also have Calistrogo from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen mm -hmm. that Alan Moore wrote about so you know that's that's becoming a trope now as well so you know these magical elements are filtering in to mm -hmm. the comic book world especially through these channels through mm -hmm. these writers and artists who know about all of this stuff and for anybody who wants uh to go deeper on the subject um some of the books that we discussed were of course um 
Well, Peter Lavenda has written a lot on a, on a variety of kind of taboo subjects. Uh, we mentioned Unholy Alliance, which is his book about um, the Project Paperclip and the mystical pursuits of, um, of the Nazis, um, and his book The Dark Lord, which is about the Typhonian tradition that ties Aleister Crowley to H.P. Lovecraft. And um, I know Howard had, had brought with him a book called um, Mutants and Mystics, by a Jeffrey uh, Cripple, Cripple. Yeah. and um, it looks to be very, very good reading. It's interesting. Uh, the fellow wrote this. It's sort of like his dissertation paper, and his whole idea is that comics, pulps, and uh, all of this metaphysical literature are creating what's known as sort of a super story. That all of the all of these titles are interconnected through various common tropes. Uh, you know, that sounds like the cliff notes for the forthcoming Alan Moore book, Jerusalem, uh, which he's been promising us for about 25 years, (laughs) uh, which is also sort of a game that it comes with a board game in which when you roll the dice, the act of rolling the dice casts a spell. And um, well, the validity of which I think will attest to the belief of of, of the user. Let's but, hope it um, works better than uh, Grant Morrison designing sigils for that Robbie Williams record, which didn't do very well. The Robbie Williams, <laughs> maybe that was his uh, his intent. <laughs> Take money from the man, but don't give him any fame. There you go. Um, there but of course, he's he's done much better in in his um, his performances with My Chemical Romance, um, who are now I think on hiatus. While um, Comic author and performer Gerard Way is is embarking on his own um, solo career, which uh, Grant has also been very much a part of. And I'm sure we'll have Grant on uh, one of these days when I can uh, I can secure him for for 45 minutes. But um, that's going to bring this episode to a close. This has been kind of a um, a longer episode for us, but I think well worth it. Um, hope everybody else has been as uh, gratified as I to have Howard Hallis on. And um, Howard, why don't you shout out some um, some websites for people so they can see what you're doing. Um, before I, I, I hand this over to him, um, you should be aware that Howard Hallis is the man who created the picture of everything, which was um, covered by Wired magazine. Um, it is getting a, an extension. It is a huge piece of incredible detail, one of the most impressive things I've ever had the joy to exhibit. And, um, well, hit us with some websites. Yeah, you could see that at uh, www thepictureofeverything.com you can go to my website at howardhollis.com and my last name is spelled h-a-l-l-i-s so howardhollis.com i'm also in the process of updating my dr strange collection website and uh, we're looking at maybe november or december for a huge update of that that'll be live by the time this runs yeah so um I don't have, I might get a new URL for that. In the meantime, you'll be able to find it through howardhollis.com. Perfect. So again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in again to Pod Sequentialism. Uh, I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, until next time, uh, let's keep reading some comics. And may your amulet never tickle.